Earth has a magnetic field, which, luckily for us, blocks most of the harmful radiation streaming out from the sun. But besides providing a very handy radiation shield for those of us living on the surface today, the magnetic field also leaves its mark on the very rocks that make up Earth's crust, documenting tectonic plate movements, magnetic reversals, and even shifts in the Earth's rotational axis. On today's podcast, we look at the physics of paleomagnetism, the study of the magnetic rock record, and explore how Earth's magnetic field is captured in certain minerals, and what this signature, in turn, can tell us about our planet's dynamic past. According to the dynamo theory, the geomagnetic field is generated by circulating electric currents in the outer core. Moving charges generate a magnetic field, and liquid iron is an excellent conductor. The details of a field generated this way are very complicated, but to understand how paleomagnetism works, there are basically two major characteristics of Earth's magnetic field that you need to know about, the axial dipole and geomagnetic reversals. A dipole is essentially a pair of magnetic poles, a north pole and a south pole, just like a typical bar magnet. If you place a bar magnet on a table covered in iron filings, the little bits of iron will organize themselves in a predictable pattern, orienting themselves along what are called field lines that curve around and connect the north pole on one end of the magnet to the south pole on the other. Now, Earth's magnetic field doesn't come from a giant bar magnet embedded in the core, but from the organized sloshing of conductive fluid. As a result, it changes over time, and it doesn't always perfectly line up with the planet's axis of rotation. Now, the magnetic field is not perfect, okay? It has secular variation. It moves around. Right now, the North Pole is not at the spin axis. That's Dr. Ross Mitchell, a postdoctoral fellow in geology at the California Institute of Technology. He uses paleomagnetic data to investigate plate movements and changes in Earth's rotation over time. As he points out, the geomagnetic North Pole today is not aligned with the geographic North Pole, where the spin axis is. It's offset by about 11 degrees. But if you average the magnetic field over time, it behaves just like a giant bar magnet, or a geocentric axial dipole. So once we average out all those wiggles and jerks in the geomagnetic field, that position generally is what we call an axial dipole. The magnetic fields dive out of the south pole, cross the equator flat, and dive back down into the Earth and North Pole. The geometry of the magnetic field looks a lot like the lines traced out by the iron filings. The field orientation is vertical at the poles, flat at the equator, and everywhere in between, it's tilted according to the latitude. So the Earth behaves kind of like an enormous bar magnet with a characteristic magnetic field. That's one underlying principle of paleomagnetism. The other thing you need to know is that the polarity of this bar magnet, which way is up, has flipped many, many times over the course of Earth's history. These flips are called geomagnetic reversals, and they happen roughly every half to one million years, but not in a regular pattern. Dr. Frederick Vine, professor emeritus at the University of East Anglia, was a first-year graduate student at Cambridge University in 1963, when the identification of these reversals, along with an understanding of their timing, was relatively new. This was fairly early days in marine geophysics and making magnetic measurements and things. It's only been made from the sort of early 50s, really, for about 10 years. 
Vine analyzed magnetic data from ocean surveys collected by his graduate advisor, Drummond Matthews, and noticed a few things about the pattern of magnetic anomalies that had big implications for the theory of continental drift. He was doing a magnetic survey, he was doing several magnetic surveys and magnetic profiling, but crucially a magnetic survey over the crest of the Carlsberg Ridge, which is the mid-ocean ridge in the northwest Indian Ocean. In 1960, Harry Hess had proposed a theory of seafloor spreading, in which new ocean crust is formed at seams, or ridges, in the ocean floor, where magma wells up and solidifies. The new crust pushes older material aside, causing large, rigid chunks of Earth's surface, or plates, to move laterally away from each other, kind of like a conveyor belt. These plates are constantly moving around, and because the Earth is a sphere and space is limited, they're always bumping into each other, pushing up mountain ranges where they come together, and causing earthquakes at the boundaries. All of this is essential to the modern theory of plate tectonics, but just a few decades ago it was an extremely controversial subject. People in general, and in the United States in particular, um, uh, just didn't believe in continental drift. It was totally improbable. They thought it was a, a very wild idea, really. Vine observed lineated patterns, stripes of magnetic anomalies running parallel to the ridge crest and alternating in polarity. And this pattern of normal and reverse magnetization seemed to be very symmetric on either side of the central ridge. Together with Matthews, he suggested that Hess's conveyor belt also acts like a tape recorder, freezing in the polarity of the magnetic field as new crust forms in the center and moves to either side. Some of the features, the so-called seamounts, or the volcanoes basically, on the, the higher points on the seafloor, some were normally magnetized and some were reversely magnetized. Um, you know, it's the only way you could explain the disturbance in the Earth's magnetic field over them. And that was the crucial trigger, really. At first, the idea didn't gain much traction. People thought it was pretty startling, um, pretty heretical. But with further analysis of ever more comprehensive magnetic surveys and more detailed histories of magnetic reversals, the tape recorder hypothesis grew into a strong line of evidence for continental drift. Okay, but how does the newly formed ocean crust lock in the polarity of the magnetic field in the first place? Paleomagnetism works on the principle that a couple useful magnetic minerals form when a rock, say a lava, cools or a sedimentary rock lithifies or becomes hard rock. Right before they've locked in their orientation, they're able to wiggle around before they've cooled or before they've been compacted. And in that time, the magnetic minerals tend to align on average with the magnetic field. As Mitchell implies, a lot more than just the polarity of the current magnetic field is recorded in magnetic rock samples. Remember that characteristic bar magnet geometry? It's this geometry that makes paleomagnetic data really useful for keeping track of how tectonic plates have moved around over time, because the fully three-dimensional orientation of the magnetic field can be frozen in. And that tags those rocks and minerals with the location at which they were formed. This freezing in of the magnetic field is called remnant magnetization. Magnetic minerals typically involve iron. The most common of them is an iron oxide called magnetite, which has a chemical formula of Fe3O4, three iron atoms and four oxygens. The magnetic properties of naturally occurring magnetite, or lodestone, have been written about for centuries. Iron is a ferromagnetic material, which means it exhibits spontaneous magnetization even in the absence of any external field. 
This happens because of a long-range ordering phenomenon that tends to align the magnetic moments of neighboring atoms within certain areas called magnetic domains. If all of the domains in a rock sample are pointing in random directions, they'll probably mostly cancel each other out, but they can be aligned in the presence of an external field like Earth's magnetic field. Iron-bearing igneous rocks, like new oceanic crust at mid-ocean ridges, form as minerals crystallize from cooling magma. As a grain of magnetite, for example, crystallizes and continues to cool, it crosses a threshold at a special temperature. There's a so-called Curie point um, at which, well, if things are cooling, things acquire a magnetization as they cool through the Curie point. If you heat a material up, a, a magnetic material up, it loses its magnetism at the Curie point. As long as our rock is hotter than the Curie temperature, that long-range ordering phenomenon breaks down. All of the little magnetic domains will still align themselves with an external field as long as they feel it, but they can't hold on to it. As soon as the field is removed, they'll return to their random orientations and cancel each other out. It's only when the rock cools down below the Curie temperature that remnant magnetization kicks in and the rock will remember the magnetic field at the time it was formed. It's frozen in as the lava cools, something like 700 degrees or less for the iron oxides in lava flows. So as, as they cool down, they acquire the magnetization of those sort of temperatures and it parallels the Earth's magnetic field at the time. By carefully measuring the geometry of the remnant magnetization in exposed rock layers, we can figure out where those rocks originally formed. That's really useful because most of the rocks on the surface of the Earth today didn't form where they are now. They've been pushed all around the surface of the Earth by the conveyor belts making new crust at mid-ocean ridges. If your continent formed at a different location, the magnetic vectors preserved in that rock would be pointing to a different North Pole, an ancient pole position. Along with other lines of evidence, like common fossils found on distant continents and coastlines that seem to fit together, paleomagnetic data suggests that all of Earth's continents were once joined into one large landmass, or supercontinent, called Pangaea. About 200 million years ago, Pangaea started to break apart, and the continents moved away from each other to the positions we observe today. But they're still moving, at rates of centimeters per year or so, and someday they may recombine to make another supercontinent. It's happened before. Plate tectonics seems to have a pattern of its own, what we call the supercontinent cycle. So the continents are not just random bumper cars going around the world. They're very much kind of dancing, so to speak. They assemble in large masses, which rift on mass. Uh, and then that process seems to have repeated three, maybe four times through Earth history. This supercontinent cycle of coming together and breaking apart can be traced through the paleomagnetic record over billions of years. And there's yet another effect that can be teased out of these magnetized rock samples. In addition to the continents moving around with respect to each other, the actual rotational axis of the Earth has changed over time as well. Think of trying to spin a basketball on your finger. The ball is symmetric if it's fully inflated, and no matter how you choose to orient it, it will be just as easy or hard to spin. A frisbee is different. It's much easier to keep it flat and spin it on a vertical axis through the center of the disc than it is to flip it end over end. 
This notion of how easy or hard it is to rotate an object around a given axis is called the moment of inertia, and it's related to how mass is distributed throughout the rotating body. It's easiest to spin the frisbee on a vertical axis through its center because that's the axis with the largest moment of inertia. If you change the mass distribution, though, it will try to reorient itself to whatever new axis makes it easiest to spin. Frisbees are very good rotational objects. They have that nice weighty rim. Now, if a frisbee had got a mind of its own and wanted to redistribute its own mass and put some of that mass closer to the spin axis, it would all of a sudden pick a new place to rotate around. And the Earth is constantly moving mass around. In response to this constant redistribution of mass, Earth's rotational axis shifts as well. And this phenomenon is known as true polar wander. So when plate tectonics or continental drift changes how the mass of this rotating object we called Earth is distributed, then the whole solid Earth, the mantle and the crust, everything out of the outer core, actually wants to change the geographic location of its spin axis. Geomagnetic reversals, plate motions, changes in Earth's rotation, all of these things leave signatures in the paleomagnetic record. Disentangling the different effects can be extremely challenging, but the global picture it reveals, reversals recorded at spreading ridges, tectonic plates dancing together and apart, and the whole solid Earth adjusting its rotation to the shifting mass distribution, is pretty inspiring too. And the more data that's gathered, the more clear this picture becomes. You've been listening to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Meg Rosenberg. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, you can visit our website at physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. And we've put up a lot of materials related to the podcast. You can learn all about paleomagnetism, supercontinent cycles, true polar wander, you name it. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you tune in next time. <laughs>